You're listening to Finance on 2NURFM and Barry Preston, a special guest we have now. Very, very happy. Uh, a, regu- a regular guest on our program, Jonathan Payne, known for his contrarian views, keynote speaker at international and local investment conferences and seminars, author and publisher of the widely read investment news letter, The Payne Report. Now, Jonathan's prediction on this program in 2005 that the financial challenges facing the world, especially from the USA, would cause much havoc. The GFC hit the global financial crisis. Some time passed. Most thought, most thought the worst was over. Then, of course, Greece, Ireland. I think that's gone pretty quiet at Ireland. Then, of course, Italy popped its head up. How many other European countries are in dire financial difficulties? Jonathan? Hello, Barry. Uh, well, there's a, there's a series of them, Barry, and it's, uh, it's a little bit unfortunate. But as I've uh, said recently in the pain report, I, uh, I think probably the best way of summing up the situation in Europe as we speak is that there are too many bureaucrats too many politicians, too many parliaments, too many divergent interests, too many economic differences, and ultimately too much debt, all joined together in a complete dog's breakfast. And, and that really is the kind of starting point. I mean, we all know that um, Europe has, has uh, very, very high uh, levels of debt and that uh, bond deals across Europe uh, have been rising sharply and more latterly, of course, uh, we've seen uh, the problems within the European banking system because the so-called sovereign debt contagion or virus has now contaminated uh, the European uh, banking system. So, in essence, uh, we are very much at a, a very significant uh, crossroads. I mean, the very good news in the short term is that um, the U.S. Central Bank coordinated a um, an operation that was announced last night to provide uh, much-needed dollar liquidity into um, the European banking system. And as a consequence, we've had this very, very significant uh, rise in, in equity markets overnight. But all eyes now, Barry, on the European Union summit, uh, which takes place on December the 9th. And we are looking for leadership from the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. I wonder will we get it really? Can European banks or the Europe, well, the European Central Bank, cope with all this? I mean, it's huge. Well, it is. A, it, look, it is a very, very large problem, and I, I don't want to in any way uh, understate it. Uh, the European Central Bank is now playing a pivotal and cri- critical role, insofar as uh, the markets are now looking for the European Central Bank to engage in what we call quantitative easing. In essence the printing of money, which is what we've seen the U.S. Central Bank, the Bank of England, and the Bank of Japan do. Uh, however, if you look at the composition of the board of the European Central Bank, there's uh, a couple of German directors on there who uh, are not happy with, uh, with the European Central Bank uh, playing that role. But the other issue, um, which I think we've discussed on this show before, um, the, greatest, the greatest challenge, I think, is this. We have a monetary union in the so-called Eurozone, comprised of 17 nations. However, we do not have a fiscal union. It's a bit like being half married. (laughs) And the challenge for Europe is, you know, are all these European nations willing to kind of give up some of their so-called fiscal sovereignty to create a more unified Europe? And the summit on December the 9th is going to be absolutely critical in this regard. What we're looking for is Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, to in essence lay out a roadmap for fiscal union in Europe. Interesting. You mentioned contagion. I like to use the word the domino effect. 
Can this flow on from Europe challenge our economy to the point of slow development and higher interest rates in time? Well, the, the European banks are incredibly critical uh, within the global economy. I've just got some numbers that I can, I can share with you, which I think serve to fairly dramatically illustrate how significant they are. Western European banks have approximately $35 trillion in assets. That's trillion with a T. In fact, the largest bank in the world is French, BNP Paribas, and the, the BNP Paribas is roughly the same size as the French economy in terms of GDP. Eurozone banks collectively account for two-thirds of all cross-border loans globally. Mm. So the European banking system is very significant within the context of the global economy. And one thing we need to understand is that European banks have engaged or embarked upon um, a process of deleveraging, which in essence means they're going to lend less. But this is coming at a time where we know the governments of Europe, burdened by too much debt, are going to spend less. So you've got, in essence, a credit and fiscal contraction. And any student of economics knows if you put those two things together, mm. you get a recession. So I think a recession in Europe in 2012 is no longer possible or probable. It is inevitable. Mm -hmm. The question then becomes, as you ask, what is the flow on to the rest of the world? Well, clearly, the rest of the world will not be unscathed because European banks are so large in the context of the global economy. But as I've said many times on your program and in many speeches for several years, I think we need to understand that the sense of economic gravity has shifted inexorably from the so-called West and so-called developed world, which I call the submerging world, to the East. And it is to the East that we look for our prosperity. Interesting. Now, you mentioned politicians a minute ago. Um, Many years, and I'm going to say this very bluntly, many years of political stupidity where politicians had popular vote-gaining policies to the detriment of the sensible yet not-so-popular politics. Is that one of the causes? Well, I think there is a, an absence or lack of so-called political leadership um, right across the world. I'm, I'm not going to become too political on your no, today, no, fair enough. Harry, within the domestic political framework. Uh, but uh, the reality in Europe is that, as I said at, right at the outset, it's a literally, it's your ultimate dog's breakfast hmm. um, and a complete lack of political leadership. And that's what the markets are desperately looking for. So, yes, these are challenging times. And I would, I would suggest that the, the politics of the day is not helping. And one thing I would emphasize, you know, at the start of 2011, we were kind of mesmerized as the winds of change swept across. North Africa and the Middle East. Well, indeed, more governments have fallen in Europe in 2011 than have fallen across the Middle East. So hey. the winds of political change are blowing like a gale through Europe. And as I said uh, repeatedly, we look for guidance and political leadership, uh, particularly from Chancellor Angela Merkel in Germany. Okay, well, we're talking with Jonathan Payne, the International and Local Investment Conference uh, Seminar expert, author also of the Payne Report, international keynote speaker. And, Jonathan, you mentioned that it will, it's inevitable that we'll have a, a recession in Europe next year. Now, but the very informative Payne Report mentions that journalists from the submerging world are doing what they can to best bash 
China. Is China really what we read, the economic powerhouse, or is it also facing economic challenges? Well, I've on the record, on the public record, as um, suggesting that China is going to be a considerable force in the world, and, and of course it obviously is um, as we speak, and I believe will continue to be so for many, many years into the future. In the third quarter of this year, China grew, the Chinese economy grew at 9.1%. I'm penciling in a growth of around 7% in 2012. But let's remember that China is now the second largest economy in the world. And statistically speaking, it cannot sustain 9 10% growth rates. And I think this is a critical issue, uh, Barry, and I'm, I'm glad you brought China into the discussion. And I very much enjoyed the, uh, the music at the break, the morning after, because... If we're thinking about the morning after, we need to think about what are the key themes and factors that will shape and define the rest of our lives uh, and probably our grandchildren's lives. And in that framework, uh, and I've been suggesting this for a very long time, uh, the rise of the Asian middle classes is the most significant and defining phenomenon of our lifetime. And we need to remember there are three billion consumers in the developing Asian nations. Mm. And I'm incredibly fortunate to travel regularly to Asia, and I speak in the region regularly. And whenever I go to nations such as Vietnam and, and other nations in, in Asia, I'm, I'm mesmerized by the extraordinary optimism uh, of those people uh, emerging almost Phoenix-like from the ashes of a truly brutal history. And so I'm inspired by the kind of optimism for the future right across the developing Asian nations. I also, in every single speech since November 2005, quote the very able and competent Dr. Manmohan Singh, who's the Prime Minister of India, who at the conclusion of an economic summit in 2005 with his counterpart Premier Wen from China said, together we shall reshape the world order. Mm. And I believe Dr. Manmohan Singh's vision is going to be proved correct. And China, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, and many other countries in Asia have a very, very strong vested interest to ensure that the world comes through the problems that we're seeing in Europe. So for me, yes, indeed, there are problems in Europe. We need to accept that. I mean, we denial, as Mark Twain once said, ain't <laughs> just a river in Egypt. Um, we've got to accept the reality of what's happening in Europe. But also, let's accept the reality that is, what is, that is happening in the most populous nations in the world. And therein lies the cause for medium to long-term optimism. Where, yes, indeed, we face short-term pain in the context of history in Europe today. But medium to longer term, uh, the global economic outlook is incredibly positive and, in fact, very, very positive for Australia. Very much so, I believe. China relying upon its manufacturing industries to produce, but its ability to sell its products to the world is paramount, and you've just mentioned that. Now, Europe and Asia, obviously, are one of their biggest customers too, and of course it's got to take an interest in that. It takes in huge amounts of resources, not only from Australia, but from around the world, so it's got to be positive towards that, getting uh, uh, these uh, people in Europe out of the poo. Well, absolutely. The, uh, obviously, the Chinese um, major export markets of the Chinese are in, in Europe and the United States, as you say. However, we mustn't forget uh, that the, the greatest force in the global economy today lies within China. Uh, we have all been raised in a world where, you know, cities such as New York, Manchester, Madrid or Chicago or Florida are the kind of names we all think about in terms of the great cities in the world. But what about Chongqing or Chengdu in China? 
These are the new great emerging cities, and China is developing its interior. Uh, the migration of investment in China is no longer going into the coastal zones of China. It's going into the interior mm. to great cities like Chongqing. And so what we're doing is unleashing this extraordinary and historically uh, powerful economic phenomenon, namely the Chinese consumer, the Indonesian consumer, the Indian consumer. These are the forces that are going to shape and define our, our lives in the, in the decades ahead. Do you know, isn't it interesting, we have not mentioned the world's biggest consumer economy since we've been talking about this, the US of A. They seem to be the weaker link in this at the moment. Well, America, as we know, was the, the kind of epicentre and starting point of uh, what we in Australia call the GFC, the Global Financial Crisis. Um, and they got into that problem. Why? Because they, they spent too much, borrowed too much and saved too little. And at the same time, uh, we saw a housing bubble uh, in the United States. So the United States is going into some kind of de facto hibernation for, for a while. Why? Because their savings are too low and their debts are too high. So it's quite natural uh, that the kind of so-called consumer of last resort, namely the U.S. Um, the U.S. household, uh, is going to slow things down somewhat. That's, that's only natural. If we look at economic history, uh, this, is, this has happened before. But at the same time, I, and I've said this to so many audiences, particularly in 2011, we must never lose sight of the fact that the United States is a great nation of innovation. Yes. They've given us the greatest companies in the world, the household names, the multinationals, whether it be the Amazons, whether it be the Googles, whether it be Caterpillar, whether it be Cisco, Microsoft, so on and so forth. Yes, they've given us Facebook and McDonald's too, alas. <laughs> but the United States mm. is, a, is a nation of great innovation, and they will continue to be a great nation uh, in the decades ahead. It just happens, though, that we can no longer rely on the U.S. consumer as being the spender of first and last resort. That baton of leadership and responsibility has now moved from west to east. Interesting. You know, look, what I believe that current and new systems, financial, compliances, etc., are getting so complex and hence so fragile that any interrelationship is way beyond the understanding of those who invented. And also, these complexities make fraud of major proportions very, very difficult to detect. This, I believe, is also one of the biggest challenges that governments face. Well, I agree. There's, there's far too much regulation and red tape um, one of the great challenges, in fact, India faces uh, going ahead to unleash the economic potential of India is to loosen up on the regulations and the bureaucracy and the red tape. Um, and hopefully they'll, they'll go down that path of liberalization in time. I think they've embarked on that path, but they need, there's a lot more work to be done. But, you know, across much of the so-called developed world, which I call the submerging world, um, we do have too much bureaucracy, and I would argue we have too much bureaucracy here in Australia, but we have it right across Europe and the United States. And it's served, too much regulation and, and bureaucracy serves to, to dampen ingenuity and, and, and innovation, which is the lifeblood of any economy. And it is not productive. Absolutely correct. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. Keep safe. Have a very, very happy Christmas and all the best from all our listeners. Thanks very much, Barry.